Coffee isn't just a drink, it's who you are. We are Little Green Hive, and we're here to serve that perfect cup of coffee made just for you. We're women-owned and locally sourced. Our mission is to provide the best product for our customers, as well as strengthen our community. From fair trade coffees and teas, to breakfast, lunch, and smoothies, we have everything you need to start your day off right. Now featuring our summer drinks. Come visit us in downtown Roanoke, Grandin Village, and Daleville Town Center, Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Hey, it's Leanna. Before we get to the episode, we want to take a second to thank you for listening. The fact that you chose this episode out of the millions of podcast episodes that are out there, that's pretty cool. We'd love it if you left us a review, subscribed, shared us with a friend. And if there's something you want to see us talk about on Hometown Stories, just let us know. Send an email to hometownstories at wdbj7.com. Okay, now let's settle in for today's episode. In the last few months, a local public school district had to close because of a ransomware attack. In the spring, Bluefield University also fell victim to an attack that ensnared operations there for weeks. Two years ago, our entire region was dealing with the effects of a cyber attack against the Colonial Pipeline. As our online networks get more sophisticated, so do the bad guys. In this episode of Hometown Stories, Special Agent Christopher Cope of the Cyber Squad with the FBI in Richmond joins us for a discussion about cyber vulnerabilities and ways we can stay protected. So ransomware is basically a form of malware that prevents access to your network your computer and all files on it. How much more are we seeing ransomware attacks and particularly sophisticated types of ransomware attacks? What can you talk about, you know, the growth of such cyber attacks? It's definitely evolved in the last 10 years or so. Uh, It's started out as typically a, a locked screen. You would try to log onto your computer. The screen would you would see a splash screen that says your computer is locked. In order to access your computer, you need to pay X amount of, of money via a gift card or something. You might go down to your local Walmart and, and put money on, and then you would provide that the, uh, the, the code to access that money to the bad guys, and they would then uh, unlock your computer. It's evolved over time to now where subjects are able to access your computer, identify the network it's connected to, all nodes or all computer, other computers that are, that are hosted on that network, and it's able to identify vulnerable databases. Subjects are, are then able to uh, steal personal identifiable information, sensitive information, download that for further extortion, and then they, they will lock your entire network, including uh, backups. You know, I think we're kind of used to maybe some of the email scams where there's like a bad link in there. But how are vulnerable parties, you know, getting how are people getting breached, essentially? There's there's two primary ways. The first way is, just, as you mentioned, through emails, uh, links in emails or documents that are that are uh, that contain embedded links or embedded uh, executables. 
So when a person clicks on a, a link or they, they click on the document, it executes the the code uh, basically to, to reach back to a malicious server. And then the internet ransomware and the, the other malicious software is, is loaded onto the computer. So the other way is basically unpatched or vulnerable systems. So subjects are, are typically scanning networks for vulnerabilities, vulnerabilities being basically unpatched systems such as Windows, uh, Windows Server systems, uh, and uh, Linux type systems as well, unpatched Linux systems, unsupported systems, those sort of things. They'll be able to identify the vulnerabilities and then exploit those vulnerabilities to download uh, their the malware. What do we know about the people behind them? So when we, when we talk about ransomware evolving, it has also evolved into a malware as a service type business to where developers will provide access to the ransomware for others to then facilitate their own ransomware activity. They'll access the service, they'll pay a fee or they'll pay a commission toward how, whatever money is collected off the or the proceeds from the ransomware activity. They will uh, then deploy against a vulnerable network, identify and deploy it against a vulnerable network. If that money is paid, then the developers or the hosts of that, that uh, malware as a service will then receive a commission. That's crazy. So not only are, you know, people, individuals who are, who have the capability doing this, this is a service that you can buy. Correct. How easy is it or how difficult is it to following a ransomware attack, be able to prosecute and maybe get some, um, you know, restitution for the damages done? So we do have our work cut out for us in, in the FBI, but we do have you know, not only FBI, we have other intelligence services also also working to identify these these actors. You know, we're able to, in some cases, we're able to reverse the code and identify decryption keys. Where I, through legal process, we're able to to identify and receive access to the decryption servers as well. So you know, we're we're able to make efforts to lessen the burden on the victim. Uh, you know, if we do have a, a victim in, in our area of responsibility here in Richmond, in some cases, we're able to assist them with uh, retaining access to their, their networks and access to their systems. Uh, in other cases, we're able to put them in touch with subject matter experts who may have the ability to assist as well with the decryption of, of their networks. But as far as prosecuting the actual people responsible, how likely is that? It's it's difficult, you know. So the, the way the FBI has positioned themselves is they've they were going after not only the the developers, uh, the actors that are purchasing the service itself. We're also going after. We're trying to make it more costly for them to continue pursu pursuing or using uh, ransomware and deploying against victims. So we're we're going. We're not only going after the developers those deploying it, we're also trying to go after the the, uh, the networks that they use, the botnets that they use to deploy the the uh, these the, the malware. So, you know, if we're able to identify them, a, a lot of these actors are in, in Europe. Uh, so it is somewhat difficult. A lot of them are in Russia, uh, Ukraine. So, you know, we, we do 
if we're able to identify the developers, we're able to indict them, put out a, re a red notice as well. So if they do travel, it makes it more difficult for them to travel as well. So, you know, not only we're we going after developers, we're also going after the infrastructure that they use to deploy this, this type of malware. So we can shut down, you know, say, I believe it was Hive that was identified a few months ago. We were able to go after that, that website that, that uh, sold the malware and we we're able to shut that down as well. And we're able to identify the actors who were responsible for, for creating that, the, the Hive ransomware site and basically take that, take that down as well. Do you have a sense, you know, at least for us in the United States, of the crimes that are committed, what percentage of those actually find, find justice in, in the, through prosecution for the victim, justice for the victim? So it's, it's, that's difficult to define. We, we really don't, we really don't know. Um, so the, yeah, the U.S. Attorney's Office would be able to provide that information or, or actually may have a better idea, their information, because the Secret Service also investigates cyber crimes as well. Um, you know, what I, what I will say is, you know, we do what we can to identify the subjects that are involved in, in these investigations. And even though they may be overseas, we are able to at least publicize it. You know, the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, you know, charged certain individuals with this crime. Uh, you know, and we, we do put out uh, uh, wanted, you know, uh, requests as well. So, you know, while I can't pr provide you a number, you know, I do, do know that the FBI is doing what we can to identify these individuals and possibly work on lower activity to try and get them out of, say, Russia or Ukraine in order to arrest them overseas. Is the pace of technology for the prote software protections or whatever protections are in place against a ransomware, are, are they keeping up with the pace of growth and sophistication of the ransomware itself? It's, it's, very, it's very difficult to keep pace with it. No sooner is a vulnerability identified through, say, Microsoft and, and you know, a notification is made is actors are already looking to exploit those vulnerabilities. So, and you're talking within minutes or hours of the vulnerability being uh, released publicly. So it is getting more difficult and, you know, not all businesses and, or, or institutions are, are equipped or, or as on top of things or, and, and can quickly uh, deploy a patch on their network in order to uh, keep those vulnerabilities from being exploited. Do you think the bigger threat when people are attacked is the vulnerability of their data or the potential loss in money paid to the attacker? Right. It's not so much the, the loss of money is that the exposure of the data. So if it's, you have two things, it depends on the victim. So it, the victim could be a major hospital. You know, if you lose services of, of a hospital, it could could cause you know major medical incidents to occur, whereas some of the malware where the subjects are identifying vulnerable databases, stealing sensitive information, uh, that can also be used by other subjects who purchase that information to steal your identity, uh, apply for a credit card to credit, uh, file tax returns. So there, there's much more exposure to these to the, the vulnerabilities and to losing that information. 
but then again, on the flip side, when you talk about critical infrastructure shutting down pipelines as a result of, of ransomware attacks, shutting down hospitals, uh, there's you know, two sides of the same, same issue that could both be equally uh, damaging. What is the advice uh, or, you know, the leading procedure that you would suggest to them to make sure that they're they're shored up, not only from just a good sort of foundation, but also being able to adapt to the changing threats? I would say three, three things primarily. Uh, one is train your people. Uh, the more well-trained they are in identifying a phishing activity, identifying malicious links or documents uh, that could be used to exploit their networks, train them on being more cyber vigilant, uh, not clicking on things that they may suspect to be uh, malicious. Uh, the second thing is, is have a robust patch policy in that the, the moment a vulnerability is identified, that then you are identifying the patch and repairing your, your network and the vulnerabilities associated with it. The third thing is uh, having a, an offline backup. So making sure that your system is back up, backed up, and once that system is backed up, you take that cloud or whatever service you're using to back it up and take it offline. So what can I do as an individual to make sure that I am doing everything I can to protect myself? I would, yeah, I would say be careful who you're giving your information to. Um, you know, obviously, if you go to a, a school or something like that, you may be required to provide your personal identifiable information. And you know, by providing that, it's going to make you vulnerable to attacks. So you know, if, if a university gets attacked and, and the subjects or the, the bad guys are able to identify a vulnerable database with that personal identifiable information, it's very possible that it can be uh, exploited further. Um, so yeah, I would just be careful of the information you're providing. There's really nothing you can do once you do provide it. But I believe most of the information at you know, especially like a institution or or a school, is typically encrypted and more difficult to get to. Uh, so yeah, I would definitely be careful what information you're also providing online. So a lot of social media platforms have the ability to keep your data private and only available to certain friends, you know, such as Facebook. Uh, so the information that you put on there could also be used to exploit you or your, your, uh, your networks or your, your computers. I want to talk about the role of artificial intelligence in this. Where are we seeing artificial intelligence play a role in ransomware or, or just, you know, cyber security and cyber vulnerabilities in general? So it's fairly it's a fairly new thing. It's basically taken off over the last uh, two years or so. We haven't seen much in terms of cyber crimes committed through artificial intelligence, but I, I, I would not doubt that it's around the corner in that you can set up an AI system possibly to, let's say, scan for vulnerabilities across networks. So it is very possible that something is on the horizon it's just we we haven't been able to identify what what that is yet i know your your um scope is you know you're based in richmond but based on what you know on your role and maybe in speaking with peers across the country you know if you had to give us a grade for the job that we're doing in and protecting against 
ransomware, and I know that could be broad, um, but you know, how, how well prepared do you think that we are compared with the threats that we face? You can't protect against what you don't know. And the issue is, you know, malware and technology is constantly evolving. So, you know, it's, it's difficult to protect against those things. You, you, you just don't know what you're, you're trying to protect against, but you could take measures to train people uh, to have a more uh, aggressive patch policy uh, and also maintaining offline backups so that you're able to recover quickly and and minimize the the exposure and minimize the the impact of of the activity for individuals or businesses or institutions who say okay i want to take some more steps to make sure my security is more robust what resources are out there either free or for purchase either through the fbi or other means that you would recommend that people can start doing to educate themselves so fbi.gov we have ic3.gov is the internet crime complaint center uh, there are plenty of resources on there you can take a look at uh, dhs cisa also has resources available and basically providing basic cybersecurity practices and and training and resources for you to to use. I'm just curious, like if you had a megaphone, you know, that you could reach a, a wide number of businesses or institutions in Virginia and either clear up a misconception or, um, you, you know, debunk a myth or just get one big message across. What is it that you would like to get across? We need to report these things. A lot of businesses are able to recover quickly or possibly prevent an attack, it's important to report these things. The FBI cannot investigate what we don't know. And if we do have a victim in our area of responsibility in Richmond, please give us a call or file, file a complaint on ic3.gov. A lot of that information is aggregated across the country and sent to the local field office for possible investigation. So would you say these types of incidents are underreported? Yes, especially in since cyber cybersecurity insurance has become a, a major practice now, a lot of companies are able to to recover quickly uh, due to the remediation efforts through the insurance companies. They're able to recover, and as a result, you know, not many of them are reporting this. That's really interesting, but um, it could go a long way in maybe helping protect somebody else down the line, right? Correct. And yeah, what happens when a complaint is filed? Again, this information is aggregated, sent to the local field office. It may not be investigated, it may not meet certain thresholds, but it also does pr provide plenty of intelligence for us then to to uh, weaponize the, the public and at least notify them so that they to help prevent additional victims. What is the, for you kind of like the most interesting part of your role with the FBI? Uh, so just being involved in the in the investigations itself, uh, speaking with some of the victims, you know, you, you always feel a responsibility for protecting the public. And when they fall victim, uh, you want to try to provide more. So, you know, with us doing interviews such as this, us doing presentations around the, around the area, you know, it helps us uh, educate the public and for help help prevent uh, types of this type of activity. 
We've put some of the resources for you and your business on our website, wdbj7.com. And remember, when in doubt, don't click that sketchy link. The mountains around Eagle Rock, Virginia were the backdrop to the early life of a man you've probably never heard of, but a name it is hoped you won't forget. And let's be honest at the outset, Norvell Lee is not Bonneton County's most famous son. He's just not, but he should be. It was on a July day in 1952, Norval Lee, the boxer, made history in Helsinki. He was the first black Virginian to win an Olympic gold medal. But back home, it was in the courts where Lee would make a win of equal impact. I never knew that so much had gone into his journey. He was just jovial, man of few words, grandpa. In our next episode, we're stepping back to a summer's day when Badatot's most famous son was given his due credit. That's next week on the Hometown Stories podcast. Hometown Stories is a production of WDBJ7 in Roanoke, Virginia. This episode was written and produced by me, Leanna Scacchetti, and edited by Ben Roquelme. We'll see you next time. Hometown Stories is sponsored by Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Locations in downtown Roanoke, Daleville, and Grandin.